Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. What's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Upstream Chief Strategy Officer Priscilla Johnson, continuing our 2023 Reusey series, highlighting the organizations and individuals partnering with us on Upstream's third annual Reuse Awards. Today, I'm excited to welcome Anita Schwartz of WSP. Anita is a practice leader for the Sustainability, Energy, and Climate Change Group, supporting Fortune 500 clients, non-government organizations, and the public sector to embed a just and equitable transition to a circular economy. Anita consults with various organizations on waste mitigation, packaging redesign, and logistics improvements to advance material efficiency and carbon avoidance. She also leads her expertise to non-government organizations on eliminating single-use packaging and transitioning to durable and reusable packaging in the consumer goods industry. This work extends to standards development for packaging reuse, which builds on her decade-plus tenure at Waste Management, where she led innovative business development solutions for solid waste, recycling, reverse logistics, and bio-based materials. Listeners may also remember Anita as a panelist on Indisposable Live, the new reuse economy live stream we held at the end of 2022. We're so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast now, Anita, and learn a little bit more about your story. You have impressive and extensive experience in waste management and sustainability, not to mention business management and strategy. Tell me a little bit more about your journey and how you've pulled all these threads together. Thank you, Priscilla. I'm really pleased to be here, and I am so excited to talk about these topics and sort of our work in the reuse space. Um, So thank you for having me. Waste management, um, my experience there was like a fantastic university. It was a lot of on-the-job learning about material flow. How are things collected? How are they sorted? What are, what's an end market? And what drives end market demand and recyclability? Um, so really the ins and outs of materials. Um, prior to waste management, I had worked in sustainable real estate and energy. And so it was a lot of learning on the go as, as I was uh, ramping up into my role at waste management. Um, in the very beginning, I was on a team that said, you know, a lot of what ifs. And, you know, this was 2010. And we had just, Waste Management had just um, won the title sponsorship for the Phoenix Open. And in planning the event, our team said, what if we just took all the trash cans off the course? And now the Waste Management Phoenix Open is the largest zero waste sporting event in the world. So the types of things that I had learned in the process of working at waste management was that there is a change management strategy that needs to be embedded in the private sector as well and with business clients. So a lot of those learnings I gained at waste management, not just the technical components of um, what the waste industry does, but then also sort of this translation to the business community is very relevant in the work that I'm doing today. Wow, Anita, that is tremendous. You said that that sporting event is the largest zero waste sporting event in the world. 
those are really spectacular accolades and accomplishments. And it takes a lot of people to get something like that done. Can you talk about the team that had to be built to make that happen? Sure. Um, When we had started, we were a team of consultants within the organization. And so we had a presence in different geographies around the U.S., And I was uh, in the Chicago area at the time and really supporting our team within Chicago. But we had a West Coast, uh, East Coast, and uh, Southeast presence, um, mainly Texas area because that's where our headquarters were. And uh, this team of consultants came together and we were assisting waste management customers with their sustainability initiatives, particularly around waste. But we were also supporting some internal work within waste management as well. The Phoenix Open happened to be one of those. And so that team came together and said, okay, what can we do to demonstrate sustainability in golf? Um, Since my my tenure at Waste Management, that team has actually expanded quite significantly and does a lot in sustainable sports today, um, particularly with the PGA and the NBA and other sporting um, venues and events. Uh, that's it's pretty significant. So it is uh, a real, it was a very interesting place to flex sustainability because it's very public and it's very tangible um, for attendees as well as for those that are participating in the athletes space. That's incredible. Talk about uh, changing consumer demand. So what are some of the initiatives you're working on right now with WSP? So I'm working with a lot of organizations that have public facing, um, very, very ambitious sustainability goals around net zero or zero waste targets by, you know, certain, uh, date or really developing their circularity strategy. Um, so circularity is a, a opportunity to really manage scope three emissions and is really critical to be able to achieve net zero targets. Um, so it is really wonderful to see how companies are starting to make targeted strategies to manage their embodied carbon materials, the higher uh, embodied carbon materials, and sending these market signals for less carbon intensive materials as well. Um, so working a lot across that aspect of sustainability, but then also really looking at their supply chain and understanding where there's opportunity to be able to reduce scope three emissions within their supply chain. So my work now with WSP is much more focused on sort of upstream solutions um, and not so much on diverting more from landfill, but on using less and doing more with what we already have. Well, that's fantastic. And usually the scope three emissions, those are the ones that have people scratching their heads the most and, you know, kind of holding your breath and wondering, you know, now how am I possibly going to get uh, access, you know, these primary companies that are maybe manufacturing companies relying on third parties, how are they going to get access to the data even to be able to even measure what a scope three emission looks like? And, and now you're talking about how circularity could actually be a part of managing those. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Maybe give us an example of, of how that is accomplished. Sure. Um, so when looking at your suppliers and your vendors and kind of going through your supply chain, the materials that you acquire have an inherent carbon value in them 
And so when you are using those materials and then discarding at end of life, it has its impact on your carbon inventory. And so if you're able to identify those high carbon materials like concrete and steel and aviation fuels, um, those are very high carbon intensive materials that companies utilize um, in either construction or in travel um, or logistics. And if you're able to identify that those are your biggest carbon emission uh, materials, and then identify how you could work with your suppliers to be able to secure lower carbon materials that then have a positive impact on your total carbon inventory. So for example, if you were to use a lower carbon cement or a sustainable aviation fuel, it can have a tremendous impact on your total carbon inventory and thus your scope three emissions as part of your inventory. Wow, that's that's probably one of the clearest uh, explanations I've heard of how to reduce scope three emissions. So thanks for that. And it leads me to think about uh, just, you know, in particular in the, in the oil and gas arena, how a just and equitable transition to a circular economy would look like. How do you think we could get there? Do you have some ideas? Um, one of the words that comes to mind to me is redistributive. Um, when we talk about the R's of the circular economy, refuse, rethink, reduce, reuse, repair, etc., but we don't really talk about redistribute, which is really redistributing the inherent value embedded in the materials we extract, produce, and use. And then we should recover and redistribute the economics in these communities that have been unduly impacted by this linear economy, if they can be the link between what is discarded that could be reutilized and have that chain link back to the forward supply chain, that's really a sweet spot of where we might be able to redistribute this wealth and power to communities that have been impacted by our traditional way of extract, make, consume, and waste. That's really, um, you know, quite enlightening how you're you're expressing this. Um, you know, you talk about the R's, and you know, it's it's not just a notion. It, it's something that is well within our power to do. Uh, you know, w- we know how to create economies. And, and what you're saying is that there, there are real economies around circularity. And, you know, we're not calling for the abolishment of, of capitalism. We're calling for the equitable redistribution of resources that bring and do no harm to communities that have historically bared the brunt of what so far has been a linear economy. And it, it's sort of like you, you can't unsee what you've seen. And now that we've seen what we see, and we're starting to see more and more evidence of the linkages between different diseases, disorders with the exposure to plastics, for example, and the proliferation of plastics through our environment, we have a duty really to do something. 
And what you're telling me is that, and what you're telling our listeners is that circularity is where we get to reimagine how resources are utilized and how economies can be shored up by rethinking how we produce and manufacture things. So I really appreciate your perspective on that. And so with that, I'd like to talk a little bit more about standards development for for reuse. But of course, you know, here at Upstream, that is definitely what we hold up. Um, So we held a live stream on this topic with PR3 last year. And we were diving into the importance of universal standards for refillables in order to scale the reuse economy. And I'm curious, what, what's your approach that you're taking at WSP and, and what progress have you made around standards development? Sure. Um, thank you for that recap. I, I think that it is a very important part and it does dove, dovetail into standards because without being able to have consistency across a reverse supply chain, whether that's reusable packaging or if it's electronics or if it's any type of material really trying to re-enter into our system, um, there has to be uniform consistency in terms of how that material is going to be collected, aggregated, tracked, and then redistributed. And that consistency is really what the standards are trying to achieve, right, is by setting a, uh, a playbook by which all operators should adhere to. So when we think about, for me, the biggest one, in my opinion, is digital codification. Um, when we're all speaking the same language, we'll know what to do with those materials once they're post-use. And just as much as we have information on extraction, manufacturing, product production to the retail store shelf to point of sale, we should have the same type of language in post-use so that we can redirect these materials in the same way. Um, So I think in terms of standards development, you know, creating those uh, boundaries by which all operators play will create consistency and will create scalability. Um, So I think that that's a really critical portion of what this standards development can do. Um, In terms of what we're doing at WSP is we are really trying to help organizations align to how these standards can impact their business operations, whether they're going to lean into reuse, whether that's for their logistics packaging or internal operating systems. Um, We try to help them understand these types of boundaries are helpful to be able to create scale. So this is a, an, an evolution is, is what it's sounding like with, um, you know, just as there and have been standards, for example, and um, uh, pasteurization of milk. I mean, you just think of like a really big commodity like that. And everyone knows when you, you know, pull a, you know, a gallon of milk off the shelf that, okay, this is going to be the same sort of specs, you know, this is, you know, delivered to the consumer in such a way that it won't harm them. And what you're saying is that the repurposing uh, of materials needs the similar standard as well, because if you're going to reintroduce it back into a supply chain, then we're going to have to know that, okay, well, this particular material is going to have the same 
type of resiliency or uh, maybe temperature resistance um, that another material might have. So, I mean, this is really talking about something that's extremely granular and you'd have to have a lot of transparency around, uh, you know, the actual um, material itself, where the material is in the supply chain uh, post-consumption. So I am curious. I mean, WSP is a, a, a really, um, you know, fantastic consulting agency, but you all, uh, you all must be thinking about working with a lot of different organizations. Like, for example, um, you're on the advisory board for uh, underwriter laboratories, uh, circu- their circular economy standard, and everyone kind of knows the UL. Um, maybe some folks who don't know what they do. So maybe you could kind of enlighten us, you know, what is underwriter laboratories? And can you tell us a little bit more about that work you're doing with that circular economy standard board? Sure. Um, Underwriter laboratories is a standards and validation uh, entity, essentially. And so anytime you have an electronic, if you turn it over, it'll say UL validated. So they do a lot in that space with consumer products. Um, in validating the efficacy of, of a consumer product and safety of a consumer product. But they also have an environmental um, division, and that's where this standard sits. So essentially what the standard is looking to do is to quantify circular performance. And so using data specifically, not just a narrative of a company's performance and circular um, policies, but really looking at it from a data-driven perspective. How is a product performing in the circular economy? And again, thinking about that supply chain piece and the scope three piece that we talked about earlier is, you know, what is the company doing? What is the company's tier one suppliers? What are they doing? And then taking it out to the next sphere of influence from a company's perspective to the greater supply chain. How do you get primary data from your supply chain to support your circular performance? And so that is um, the the backbone of the standard. We also include, um, so at a product level, the circular performance at a site level, manufacturing site level, there's also a standard that can apply there in terms of how do you quantify your circular performance in your operations, and then across the entire organization, which would include all of the products the company manufactures and all of their operations. So really taking a very broad, like holistic approach for an organization, but must provide all of the data to support their circular performance. And so there's um, the standard had been published in January of this year. Um, so there's a lot of information in the standard around what types of metrics are there to support. And we do add a section in there around social justice. So we are thinking about it in the context of how, how does circularity also impact um, social justice? And I think there was one example that um, always stuck with me when we were talking about, you know, including equality and justice into the standard was um, a astronaut suit, you know, in its original conception was made for men so that when there was the first female astronauts, they didn't have a solution for female astronauts. So the suit design itself is not inclusive nor circular because it cannot then be applied to 
other body types and other genders. And so that was a very interesting um, example of how do you make circular products perform in all scenarios for all people. Wow, that's a great analogy. Uh, and I, I think it kind of, you know, what you're sharing with, with our listeners is uh, two things, the complexity behind moving into the circular economy and that there are a lot of moving parts to it. And, uh, and in essence, it, it, it sort of really kind of begins at this sort of molecular level um, where you're talking about the standards that everyone can agree. This is something that we can reuse and has value in the circular economy. And, um, you know, just as an aside, it, it just sounds like the train has, has left the station. You know, we're moving in this direction because we have finite resources, and we're finding you know that out in 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 the best and the worst way. So your your work is extremely important um, for that. So so thank you for sharing it with us. And and it it turns me to the topic of uh, yet again we've got June and the reusies coming up, and the finalists they actually were already announced. And any of the curious listeners out there, you can learn all about them at thereusies.org. And I'm curious, what motivated you to serve as a judge for the Reusies? I find this space to be fascinating in terms of how quickly um, the adoption is starting to take momentum for reusable packaging. And um, there's so much opportunity to be able to really change the way that we consume things by prioritizing reuse, it changes the mindset. It's a cultural shift. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why I wanted to serve as a judge for the reusies is to hear about all these fascinating business models. Um, but also to really, you know, be part of this movement, because I do think that there's so much potential, not just from an environmental perspective, because that we all know, but I think it's really creating this cultural shift in the U.S. that is really a, a critical path for us when we think about how we manage and how we consume material. Yeah, there's a, there's a pretty awesome brain trust that's out there. Uh, and it seems like every day someone comes online, we have you know new listeners, new subscribers, who are part of this this movement and you know building this this reuse this new reuse economy? Um, so, without naming any specific companies or organizations, what kind of reuse systems are you seeing out there that you're excited about? Um, in my world, <laughs> I'm seeing a lot in the tertiary packaging space, um, specifically uh, with some of my client work, and I think that that's very exciting. Um, and I know it doesn't sound very exciting when we talk about tertiary packaging, but it is because there is so much uh, logistics packaging that goes out into the world. And so being able to try to leverage and scale um, reuse in logistics, I think, is a very interesting space. Now, that's, there's a lot that's being done, but organizations are really starting to embrace that and starting to quantify that. Um, and the benefit to their organization. So I think that in in the work that I've been engaged in, um, sort of these systems have been uh, uh, very exciting. And then on the consumer side, I think that um, we are seeing more interest and uptick from consumer goods companies. 
um, in regards to reusable packaging and how to really start to think about what systems are necessary to be able to enable reuse for an organization that might not be a closed loop solution, that is an interoperable solution. And that I think is that light bulb moment for a lot of people is that, oh, we can share. And I think that that's a really important piece of what's happening out there right now is this idea around sharing. Wow, there's no better note to end that on than the concept of sharing. Because that's what we're talking about, uh, the circular economy is about sharing new ideas, uh, inviting new and diverse perspectives in and to the table. Anita, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I cannot wait to see you at the Reuses. Thank you so much, Priscilla. I'm super excited to be there. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.